This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Fidelity, financial planning that moves with your life. Learn more at fidelity.com slash your goals. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSC SIPC. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Olorunipa with The Washington Post. Hi, this is Amy Britton calling from The Post. This is Peter Jameson from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, September 18th. Today, how Howard University shaped Kamala Harris. Israel's election ends without a clear winner. And who Hillary Clinton's biggest supporters are backing now. I heard that you might have visited Howard at that time. Yes, I had visited a very good friend who was at Howard in the 80s. And I had arrived looking like a college student from Princeton in sweatshirt and jeans. And I remembered stepping on Howard's campus. And I I was honestly just completely discombobulated because everyone was so dressed up. Yes. (laughs) I mean, I feel like that comports completely with my sense of of what Howard is. And I just thought, what is going on here? Is it a special day? (laughs) No, that's every day. Every day. You dress up, you show out, you look good. Yeah. I mean, I would think I was doing really well if I had like washed my hair and (laughs) and blown it out. Uh, But they really. They were very conscious of how they moved through the world, even if it was just moving across the yard. Notice I said the yard, not the quad, but the yard. (laughs) You have all the lingo, Dan. (laughs) You've really done your reporting. (laughs) I'm Robin Gavon, and I'm the fashion critic for The Washington Post. And I'm also a staff writer. I don't know. That doesn't make any sense for this story. (laughs) So you went back to basically find out what Kamala Harris was like at Howard, what Howard was like when Kamala Harris was there. Why did you want to look into this period in her life? Well, I think a lot of people feel that they sort of become an adult during their college years. And I I think that for Senator Harris— Howard was even more important. Howard very directly influenced and reinforced equally important my sense of being and reason for being that you can and should be a leader and then you will choose the path that that will be the path upon which you will, you know, lead, that you can't do anything. It reinforced all of that, that you do not have to ever be limited by people's Um, limited views of what you are, who you are, what you can be. It was such a conscious decision to surround herself in a Black environment, Um, one that was really rooted in the history of Blacks in America, uh, one that in particular celebrated Black exceptionalism. Um, You know, it just sort of seemed to speak very deeply to the way that she defined herself. And I think it also was an interesting place to start in sort of understanding how she sees herself in in the world. Um, Because, you know, people look at her and sort of see this multicultural person. 
Because her her father is from Jamaica, her, her mother is from, from India. Jamaica, exactly, and I think the fact that she chose Howard, which back in the eighties, you know, people didn't say HBCU; they said a black school, um, really spoke to how she personally defined herself and the way that she wanted, I think, to sort of process the world. What did she say about what her thinking was at the time and and why she wanted to go to Howard? Well, part of it seemed to be that um, she was really captivated by sort of the sheer volume of students who were like her. I mean, it was more for me about the numerosity than it was the diversity, right? Um, Meaning I grew up in a community where there were many representations of the, you know, the diversity, mm-hmm. but going to Howard and that there were so many, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and that, you know, and, the, and it's also about being around that and they're all, you know, in your age group, in your phase of life, right? That you could sort of live uh, in this space where you were not only the majority, but you were also the default. It was about understanding that it is not a niche to be Black in America. And and that, you know, we are everywhere, that our history is America's history, and that whatever you choose to do, you stand on the shoulders of those who have contributed to it and have been there before you. That your story wasn't this sort of extra story, but your story was the main story. So tell me about what Howard was like in the 80s. It was in the middle of Washington, D.C., which was Chocolate City at that time. And it was also a city that was not as um, sort of gentrified as it is today. There was also um, an incredible amount of sort of Black culture that was in its infancy. I mean, it was the beginning of sort of the world of hip hop and and rap, and that was starting to happen. And it was also the era of, you know, Ralph Lauren polo shirts Mm -hmm. and Donna Karen and Benetton. Mm -hmm. And I say that because the students there were really interested in fashion and style and dressing up. And some of that was obviously just sort of the sheer pleasure of fashion. But it was also, um, you know, sort of part of the whole experience of Howard, which was that you sort of were very consciously aware of what it meant to be a Black person in the world and to be very proud of that. And I feel like that is representative of Howard in a lot of different ways, this idea of you are an exceptional Black person Mm -hmm. and you need to make it clear to everyone around you that you are exceptional. Yeah. I mean, for instance, the business school students wore suits and carried briefcases. In college. college. A bunch of 19-year-olds going to class with briefcases. And, you know, I think today people might look at that and go, oh, my God, you're just sort of going off to kind of be part of the system. But at the time, you know, there was 
there was real pride in going off to Wall Street or becoming a corporate attorney and essentially rising to the top of the quote unquote system. Um, That was a really sort of subversive act. And I think you sort of see that in the decisions that Kamala Harris made to go into um, the district attorney's office. But a lot of it is about working the system from the inside. A lot of it is about working the system. A lot of it is, um, you know, this idea that you're not going to Howard to like turn tables over. You're going to learn how to be the person who sits at the head of the boardroom table. I spoke to Eric Easter, who was an upperclassman uh, when Kamala was there, and he had such a great assessment of what it meant um, to be a Howard alum. You learn that at every level of need you might have and, and through your lifetime, there is someone who looks like you who can probably satisfy that need. Which I think is a very sort of profound statement, meaning that whether or not you need a lawyer, a doctor, a dentist, a teacher, a business partner, an actress, a dancer, whatever you need. From the top to the bottom, there are people who fill all of those spaces. So you come out with a power that that makes you really sort of brave as you walk through it. So what was Kamala Harris like up to in college? (laughs) What was her major? Did she, I guess she was in clubs. She must have been in clubs. She was an economics major and she was on the debate team. Uh, She was, curiously enough, uh, a Kappa sweetheart which is this sort of auxiliary group to um, uh, the Kappas fraternity. I mean, everyone that I spoke to, you know, remembered her as being very nice and warm and with a big, easy laugh. You know, Kamala loved dancing and she would throw house parties um, when she house sat at, you know, a friend of her mother's here in the district. So she was absolutely, you know, Uh, someone who was focused um, on her future, and she was a very serious student, but she was also not a wallflower. She was a lot of fun. And she also pledged AKA. She did. Alpha Kappa Alpha, which— Pink and green. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me more about AKA and why this was a big deal that she decided to be part of this group. Well, AKA, uh, the soarers of AKA, uh, they are not sorority girls. They are soarers. Um, important to point out. Very important to point out. It's uh, the oldest, I believe, of the sororities, and it was founded at Howard. AKAs have an incredible legacy. Coretta Scott King was an AKA. And, um, you know, they really pride themselves on service and on being very civically minded. And, you know, there's like, they're like 300,000 strong around the world. And a big part of her campaign has been members of AKA hosting events for her and essentially vouching for her, not only to other members, but to other Black women and essentially saying that, you know, the fact that she is one of us speaks volumes about who she is as a person and what she understands and what's important to her. And, you know, referring to her as a sister of the Ivy is, you know, kind of shorthand for an entire speech on her behalf. I'm also curious about how you think that Kamala Harris as a political candidate 
reflects her time at Howard. If there are things that you see in the way that she speaks, the way that she addresses people, the way that she sort of navigates the world, that makes you think like, ah, yes, that is definitely a person who went to Howard. Well, you know, maybe it's because I I talked to people from Howard for so long and so many of them that I've been like, you know, I've absorbed (laughs) the Howard ethos. Um, But everyone talked about, you know, the Howard swagger and uh, how they can see it in her. And, you know, they were very upfront about it. I mean, you know, they said, yeah, I know there's definitely a cockiness that comes from going to Howard. And I mean, it's the black Harvard. It's well, they would say that Harvard is probably like, you know, the white Howard, but (laughs) they will say that they see that swagger uh, when Harris speaks. Hey, guys, you know what? America does not want to witness a food fight. They want to know how we're going to put food on their table. They see it when she is in the Senate and when she's questioning a witness. Sir, I'm not asking about the principle. I'm asking when you, well, you would be asked the these question. questions and you would rely on that policy. Chairman, Did you yeah. not ask your staff to show you the policy that would be the basis for you refusing to answer the Chairman, majority of questions that have been be asked of you? should be allowed to answer the question. Senators will allow the chair <laughs> to control the hearing. Senator Harris, let him answer. Please do. Uh-huh. Thank you the sort of exasperation that she might, uh, that might seem to be on her face. Uh, Howard alums sort of see that as sort of the impatience and the unwillingness to tolerate, you know, anything less than excellence. Um, I mean, I sort of described it as this sort of combination of confidence, cocky, and condescending that's happening <laughs> all at once. Um, and and I, I do think that some of that is attributable to Howard. But I also think that you see the AKA-ness in her when um, she, you know, has that big smile on her face. Even when she's talking about things that are, you know, ostensibly pretty serious, there is that aspect of using sort of charm and poise as, um, as a weapon. I also think it's interesting to think about how her career trajectory reflects some of the Howard ethos in terms of the way that you fix the system is by accruing power from within Mm -hmm. the system rather than trying to overturn the system from the outside. And that's certainly, you know, what she basically tried to do or says that she tried to do as a prosecutor Mm -hmm. um, to the, you know, in a way that many people now criticize, but that that is very reflective of the messages that were part of being educated at Howard in the 80s. Yeah, I think people, you know, try to ascribe the tenor of, you know, the 2019 to what things were like in the 80s. And, you know, this was a period when, you know, Jesse Jackson was running for president. The Martin Luther King holiday was approved by, you know, the federal government. I mean, these were sort of very centrist kind of victories, so to speak. And, you know, that and Howard was also not a place where, you know, people were going to become revolutionaries. It was really about becoming someone who could rise to the top of the of the system. So there were students there who, you know, who did go 
to Wall Street who wanted to become entrepreneurs. There were foreign students from Nigeria, um, in particular, were mentioned, who saw Reaganomics as this really helpful policy to their wanting to become entrepreneurs. So, you know, it was not this place of sort of revolution, even though there were um, lots of people who were protesting, for instance, apartheid in South Africa, Howard has a real sort of centrist element as well. Um, and I think you're sort of seeing how that comes up against an era of wokeness and black Twitter and cancel culture and all those things. And I think there's a tension there. I don't know if out of that tension comes something that is really solid and thoughtful and progressive, but also accommodating of flaws. I think that is to be determined. Robin Gavon is a writer for the Style section at The Post. Israeli politics are in a stalemate, again, after voters went to the polls for the second time in five months. So at the moment, around 91 or 92 percent of the vote has been counted, but it looks like a dead heat between the two largest parties, which are Likud, Netanyahu's party, and the rival party, which is Blue and White, headed by uh, former army general uh, Benny Gantz. And they are both gained 32 seats in Israel's Knesset of 120 seats. I'm Ruth Eglash, the Washington Post correspondent in uh, Israel and the Palestinian territories. You're covering the Israeli election right now. And as I recall, there was another election in Israel just a few months ago, back in April. So why is this happening again? Basically, Israel is a parliamentary democracy and uh, there are many, many parties in the Israeli parliament with around something like 10 parties, 10, 12 parties who actually make it into the parliament. So when, when the voting takes place, no one party wins a single majority, enough to form a government. So last time Netanyahu uh, wasn't in a position, even though he won the election only by a, a few votes, he wasn't in a position to form a majority that would allow him to create a coalition. And instead, in, in previous uh, situation scenarios that has happened, the person who is not able to form a government will then hand it to another, one of the other candidates. And in the situation that we had here in April, Netanyahu decided that he would continue. He wanted to try again. And uh, his uh, loyalists in the, in the Israeli parliament moved to dissolve the parliament and push the country to a second election, which has never happened before in Israel's history. And from my understanding, one part of why that was so surprising was just because Netanyahu is such a political powerhouse in Israel that some people thought that that he was unassailable. And the fact that he couldn't manage to get a coalition government demonstrated a new political weakness that people haven't seen recently. Well, it was a combination of uh, of factors. He is really known as the political Houdini in Israel or King Bibi even. 
but uh, there, you know, it really comes down to the numbers. And if there are not enough people that could support him, and uh, it's a very tricky situation, you have uh, many different elements in Israeli society. You have uh, a large minority of his of Israeli Arab citizens. You have uh, ultra orthodox who are about ten percent of the population, and you also have a large contingent of immigrants from the former Soviet Union who are uh, highly secular. So that was where some of the like uh, sticking points came up when Netanyahu was trying to form his coalition last time. And that was really the point that secularist politician Avigdor Lieberman, who in the past has supported Netanyahu, said that he would not join a coalition with the ultra-Orthodox, that he would uh, make a stand for secular issues in Israel. And that was what brought down the government or brought down the negotiations for the government last time. So where were you when results were starting to come in on Tuesday night? The polls in Israel were open from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. And I was in the Likud headquarters, the campaign headquarters, when those results came out. And uh, while I was there, I spoke to some of the Likud uh, Knesset members. I spoke to Yoav Kish, who is uh, very uh, close with Prime Minister Netanyahu. I think there's a high chance that no uh, no one will be able to make a government and we might even turn for a third election. Really? Yeah. That's the I don't see I don't see Gantz, I don't see Gantz making a government and I also think that uh, for us it's going to be very tough. I also spoke with Sharan Haskal. She's also a, a Knesset member for the Likud. And she said in politics, anything could happen. And there's no talk in Likud of asking Netanyahu to step down if he doesn't bring the enough votes that no, he promised. Not on the table. No? What is going to happen next? And what does the situation say about the state of Israel right now? Well, I think uh, it's anybody's guess what's going to happen next. There's a whole number of different scenarios. From uh, Netanyahu uh, leaving the Likud party, which seems unlikely, from one of the other players agreeing to sit with him in a coalition that would boost his numbers to a majority. So there's many, many different scenarios at play. But I think what it says, uh, what the results say about Israeli society in general is that it's more polarized than ever before, that you have two big blocks that are ideologically right wing and ideologically left wing. Ruth Eglash covers Israel and the Palestinian territories for The Post. On Wednesday, citing the political uncertainty in Israel, Prime Minister Netanyahu canceled his trip to the United Nations, where he had been expected to meet with President Trump. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. 
Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And now, one more thing. The candidates that diehard Hillary Clinton supporters say they're backing in 2020. When I first started the story, my editor was like, well, isn't that kind of obvious? Isn't it going to be Elizabeth Warren? And I was like, yeah, I kind of thought that too, but I, I think it might be a little more complicated than that. So my name is Caroline Kitchener, and I'm a staff writer for The Lily. So in the aftermath of 2016, there were all these think pieces that people were writing about why people voted for Bernie or for Trump, and no one ever talked to the people who voted for Hillary. So T.L. Durier is, I think, what anyone would think of when you say diehard Hillary Clinton supporter. She was one of those people who was out there at the polls in her white pantsuit. She went to the Javits Center where, you know, the Hillary Clinton election night party was. And, you know, 2016 really inspired her to become an activist, to get involved in politics in a way that she had never really been before. So now, coming up on 2020, she is throwing everything she has into the campaign for Senator Kamala Harris. I am supporting Kamala Harris for a number of reasons. I find her to be an incredibly dynamic, compelling, exciting candidate. And one of the things I find so, so impressive about Senator Harris is the fact that she has the second most endorsements out of any candidate. You know, Biden's got the first. He's a former vice president. That's kind of like, okay, I get it. But the fact that she's getting all these endorsements shows that people think that they can work with her and they want to be able to work with her. She thinks that Kamala Harris and Hillary Clinton have a lot of similarities. She talks about idealistic pragmatism. They both are, she feels, very inspiring candidates. But at the same time, they're they're practical. I think there are some stylistic similarities between uh, Senator Harris and uh, Hillary Clinton. Certainly, you saw a lot of former Hillary Clinton staffers uh, gravitate quickly to Kamala Harris. So John Allen is a political reporter who has written a couple of books on Hillary Clinton. He's really the definitive Hillary Clinton expert. Harris has struggled in terms of uh, raising the kind of money that Hillary Clinton did. The base of hardcore women supporters that Hillary Clinton had have split among different candidates. And so Harris really hasn't capitalized on that the way that I think some outside observers had uh, expected that she might. So one of the women that I spoke to was very interested in Joe Biden. She said, you know, this is not about being inspirational. This is not about being historic. This is not about kind of a unique moment. This is about winning. This is about beating Donald Trump. And she felt very strongly that we needed a centrist to do that. We needed somebody who could bring voters back from the other side. And she felt that that was absolutely no question, Joe Biden. They might be focused more on who they perceive to be the most electable. And those voters might be more inclined to support somebody like Joe Biden. Jennifer Lawless is a politics professor at the University of Virginia who focuses on gender and elections. And she said that this woman I spoke to is pretty typical among some Hillary diehards. 
there's this perception that people are unwilling to vote for a woman, and it's unclear that that perception is in any way rooted in reality. It's not only at the presidential level, but in congressional races dating back decades now, when women have thrown their hat into the ring, they've been just as successful as men in both primaries and general elections on both sides of the aisle. So the perception that a woman might not be electable is really just that. It's a perception. In politics, of course, though, perceptions drive behavior. So if people don't think a woman can get elected, it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I think in general, the number one priority among Hillary diehards, as most Democrats, is beating Donald Trump. And every single person that I spoke to said that no matter who the nominee is, they will come out and they will vote for that nominee. But one of the experts that I spoke to, Jonathan Allen, he wasn't so sure. If you're someone who is uh, a diehard Hillary Clinton fan, you will die hard before you will vote for Bernie Sanders. There is no love lost between those two camps. Most of them would vote for Bernie Sanders over Donald Trump in the general election, but I think some of them uh, would probably sit on their hands. What I think is really interesting about this group is that in 2016, they were so energized and passionate about electing a woman president, the first woman president. And now we see that motivation kind of on the back burner. It is secondary to uh, beating Donald Trump. Caroline Kitchener is a writer for The Lily at The Washington Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. If you've got thoughts about our podcast or stories that you've been thinking about, drop us a line. You can message me on Twitter. My handle is at Martine Powers. A listener named Cindy did that on Tuesday to tell me that her 10th grader is a fan of the show. Cindy wrote, I kind of thought I was torturing her by making her listen to my favorite podcast for the past year. But guess what? She actually loves it. Kudos to teenagers with good taste. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.